Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Salvation is a work of God. Salvation is a work that is solely of God. Man plays no part in it whatsoever. No amount of works, no amount of good living, no amount of doing anything will merit, give man any merit so that salvation therefore would come to man. In fact, as uh, uh, an old theologian now dead and gone has said, the only thing we bring to God in salvation is our own sin. That's the only thing that we present to God. There is nothing else we present to God in salvation. Now last week, we saw something of that as we looked at what is saving faith. A faith that is counted as righteous as we looked at the life of Abram. As he has a faith that trusts in God, but it's a faith that is struggling with this faith, trying to understand how God's promises and how God's plan is going to be accomplished. And we saw there in verse 15, uh, chapter 15 and 6, where it said that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, as we saw last week, this righteousness, essentially what that means is right living or living according to a standard. You know, matching up a standard. You're in right standing. And particularly when we talk about it in the Bible, it is that standard as it relates to God. We know that God is righteous. And the righteousness or the standard that he lives by is his own standard. There's no other standard above him. And yet, how is it that a man like Abram, who, who, whose faith is not perfect, but a faith that wavers, but a faith that nonetheless is growing, how is it that such a man is counted as righteous? as right with God, in right standing with God. And we saw that it's only because of the faith that Abram had, that Abram believed God, that he relied on God. He was trusting in God and really leaning on and resting on God's promises alone. And this faith that God had given him was merely a means, not a merit, Merely a means by which this righteousness was then credited or accounted to him. Where God said, now I see you as one who lives a perfect life. Even though in actuality he's not living a perfect life. And we saw how uh, as we move through the pages of scripture that this righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. So there we got a glimpse of how, so it was no merit or anything that Abram did. This salvation, this this plan of salvation even, as it's unfolding through the life of Abram. 
that it is all of God. It is no human merit. And even today, as we look at verses 7 through 21, we will see more of that, that salvation is all of God. It is not of human doing. Now, as we've been tracing the life of faith of Abram, we know that God focused his attention on this man, Abram, calling him out of idolatry, because he has a plan of redemption for this sin-cursed world. He has a plan to redeem and restore all nations of the world that is lost in sin. And so for that, he focuses on Abram, and through Abram, the plan of salvation for all the nations of the earth will be brought about. In fact, what we'll see here is that God will enter into a covenant with Abram. And this covenant really is a foundational covenant that that essentially is the covenant that brings forth the plan of salvation for all the nations of the earth. Now in verses 1 through 6, you know, the focus was on the offspring, the, the descendant or the, or the seed of Abram, the heir of Abram, and questions relating to that. And then God promised at the end of it, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And now in verses 7 through 21, the focus now will be on the possession of the land. See, because when you have so many descendants, these descendants need to have a place to live in, a land to be part of, so that then this great nation would then become that blessing through which the the rest of the nations would be blessed. And just a, a word or two about covenant. Now, we've looked at this before when we looked at the Uh, Noe covenant. You know, there are different covenants in the Bible. And as we see the different covenants in the Bible, we get an understanding of, as God makes these covenants, of how God is working out his redemptive plan at any point in time or history. So that wherever we are, as we're reading through the Bible, we're thinking through, okay, what covenant is in place now? And how is this working out? Is this only for a particular people? Or is this a covenant that is uh, more beyond that? Was this only for a particular time? Or is this a universal covenant? Uh, You know, so many questions to ask. And and in a basic sense, as we've looked at again before, a covenant is nothing but a a binding promise. You know, the example I've said before is, think of it like a contract, a, a legal agreement between two parties, where two parties agree on something and it's legally binding. So that there are consequences if you break that covenant, if you break that agreement. So here we will see the Abrahamic covenant 
the covenant that will set forth the plan of salvation for all the nations of the earth. Now, another thing that you need to realize about covenant, especially in those days, is often at the start of when somebody is making a covenant, especially royal covenants, the kings would make a declaration of who they are. There's this sort of self-identification, an introduction to who they are, saying, I am king so and so, so that it makes the credentials of that person legitimate so that, you know, then there's more validity to say, oh, wow, th- this person is the one who's promising these things. And so here we see our first point, which is the declaration. The declaration uh, that God makes. And we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. And he said to him, I... I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who always keeps his promises. And really the Lord is reminding Abram, he's saying, I'm the one who graciously called you out of the land of Ur, out of that life of idolatry and spiritual deadness. Abram, this was my initiator. It was purely because of my grace. There was nothing that you did in your past that would make you that would merit you any of these promises or anything that I've done in your life. And God is saying, my purpose, Abram, for calling you out from this land of Ur is to graciously give you this land of Canaan as a free gift to continue to accomplish my plan of redemption for all nations of the earth. Now, this declaration that God makes to Abram, you know, as you listen to it, perhaps some of you would have thought of some other declaration that God has made, you know, because it sounds very similar to the declaration God makes to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And we see that in Exodus 20, verse 2, where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you can imagine as as the people of Israel are listening to the book of Genesis being read, that they would be reminded that what Yahweh did with Abram to, to save him is what he did with them as a people, where he took the initiative to save his people so that they would be blessed. And really, this is the way God has always acted in history toward his people and continues to act toward his people. In fact, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, we too can attest to this fact, can we not? Where we would say, yes, Lord, you are the one who took initiative. It was by your grace alone where you brought me out of the slavery of sin, 
And you have saved me to bless me so that ultimately you would get the glory for it. It was nothing of me. Nothing that I did to merit this. It was all you because you are the covenant-keeping God. Now this declaration, it was meant to bolster Abram's faith. But similar to the struggle that Abram had regarding the promise of offspring that we looked at last week, Abram now has a struggle regarding the promise of land. Look at verse 8. Even as God declares this, this is Abram's response to God's declaration. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, again, Abram's response is similar to what we saw last week where he addresses the Lord as the Lord God. You see, even the G is capital G-O-D. That's, that's not Yahweh Elohim. It's Yahweh Adonai. Where he's saying, Yahweh, you are my master, my, my sovereign king. And so again, he's approaching God saying, you are my sovereign one. I'm simply your servant. And he's approaching God in a humble way. And Abram's question here, how am I to know? This is not so much a question of unbelief. And if you want any more proof of this, Just look back again at verse 6, what we saw last week, where it said, Abram believed God's promise. And the idea there is that Abram believed and continued to believe. So Abram's believing in God's promise. So, So what is this question about? And think about this. And as we think through the context and think through where Abram's at, I think we'll get a better picture. You see, years have gone past from Abram was first called out from the land of Ur and brought into the land of Canaan. Quite a few years have passed. And now there are 10 different tribes of people, if you want to call them that, that, have, that are occupying this land of Canaan. And there's no sign that anything is going to happen to them. They're quite comfortably settled in this land. And so Abram's saying, Lord, I, I, I believe in your promise, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm struggling here. Like, how will I know? I mean, will these people just, just leave just like that? And do I take over the land? Or will these people ju- just sort of, out of their own goodwill, just one day come and say, here, Please take this land from us. Or will I have to fight them all? Is that what I need to do? And and how will I know when it's time to take possession of the land? I mean, do I take possession of the land now? Is it later? And, And so he's saying, Lord, can you give me something more tangible? You know, so that I, I, I know how this possession of this land is going to take place and that I will surely know that, you know, I will possess this land. So Abram is still believing in the promises of God, but he's asking if he can have some assurance. You 
You know, when I was reading this, my thoughts went to Romans 8.32. It says there, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's like the Apostle Paul is saying to the believers and to us here. Here is something tangible that God has done. See, and what that is, is that God did not spare his son, but gave up his son to die for our sins. And he's saying by holding on to this tangible reality of what God has done through his son, he's saying we can be assured that God will give us everything we need to bring us to final glory. Or when we think of, you know, when God says that he loves his children, you know, we know that there is something tangible, again, that God has done for his children. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's another tangible reality that we can hold on to as we think of God's love. And so as Christians, we need to cling on to this tangible reality of what Jesus has done to assure us of God's love, to assure us that God will faithfully bring us to glory. And so I would say similarly, Abram's asking God, for something like that, give me something tangible that I can cling on to, God. Lord, I believe in your promise, but could you give me something more tangible to just really assure me in my faith so I can just hold on to it? And God is going to do just that in the covenant that he makes with Abram. It'll be something tangible that Abram will be able to hold on to to assure him of God's promise. So that's first the declaration, and we saw Abram's response to that. Now let's look at the preparation as it pertains to this uh, covenant. In verses 9 through 15, Well, particularly verses 9 through 11 is about the preparation for the covenant ceremony and 12 to 15 really is where then God prepares Abram's own heart with regards to his thinking about the entire covenant. So God instructs Abram to bring some animals. Look at verse 9. And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now what's a heifer? A heifer is a young cow. So you've got three big animals there. You've got a cow, you've got a, you've got a goat, and you've got a ram. All of them three years old. Probably because that age is, 
the, the, the prime age of these animals. And there's also two birds, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And then verse 10 and 11 says, And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now this might seem quite strange and unusual to us. I mean, how, how, how is this some kind of preparation for a covenant ceremony? You know, when we think of covenant ceremony, I, I, I guess the closest that we, I could think of is like a wedding ceremony. The bride and the groom, they, they come and declare who they are to one another. And then they make these promises to one another. And at the end of it, the, the wedding contract, so to speak, is made final when the bride and the groom, they sign a piece of paper. And often there's a few witnesses that also sign along with that. So we get that in terms of a covenant ceremony and signing a piece of paper. But, but you say, but what's with the animals and, and cutting them in half? I mean, did you notice here? God doesn't tell Abram what to do with the animals. All he says is, bring me these animals. But Abram knew just exactly what to do with them. Why? Because this was a common practice in those days of how a covenant ceremony would take place. So he knew exactly what to do. He knew exactly what God was going to do. And what you see here is that God is accommodating himself to something Abram would have known with regards to making a covenant. I mean, even there, what a loving and caring God, is he? Like he didn't tell Abram, hey, go get a piece of pen and paper. Abram would probably wonder, what, what is a pen? Like, I don't even know what a pen is. But he's accommodating himself to something that Abram would have known to make this covenant. And it really shows even his love and care to Abram right there. Now, let me explain this covenant ceremony to you. So Abram's taken all the animals and he's killed the animals. The larger animals, the, the cow, the, the goat and the ram, he cuts them in half. The birds, because of their size, he, doesn't, he kills them, but he doesn't cut them. And he places one half of the larger animals on one side and the other half of the larger animals on the other side. And he would have placed each bird on either side as well. Now what's going to happen when you cut animals and you kill them? You're going to have a lot of blood. And so when this happens, you know, the animals are cut and they're put like this. The, the blood from these cut pieces, they start oozing out. And so what you have here in the middle is a path of blood. In between the dead pieces of the animals. And generally speaking, after this is done, you know, each party would walk through this bloody path. 
And by doing this, as each party would walk through this bloody path in between these cut animals, they're invoking the curse of death on themselves if they did not keep the obligations of the covenant. They're essentially saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may what happened to the animals happen to me as well. Or to put it simply, they're saying the penalty for breaking this covenant is death, and may God damn me to death this way. And this is the, you know, one another clue that we can get, the only other passage in the Bible where uh, we get some more idea or clarity with regards to this is in Jeremiah 34, 18. This is the Lord speaking to some of the Israelites uh, the, the Israelite men who broke a covenant uh, that they had made, similarly in blood. And look at God's response as they broke this covenant. This is what God says to these men in verse 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So God is saying, I'm going to damn you, and you're going to die. And if you've heard the phrase, cutting a covenant, this is where the, the phrase comes from. And some even think even that English term, uh, or English phrase where it says, cut a deal, quite likely would have come from this as well. So Abram's prepared the animals for the covenant ceremony. He, he even chases away the birds of prey that is coming on to come and try and eat these uh, dead animals. And he's, he's waiting on the Lord to make this covenant. And I'm sure at this time, as he's waiting, he's thinking, okay, I know what's going to happen. Now the Lord and I, we're going to walk through this bloody path together and, and a covenant is going to ma- be made. But God had other plans. And he was not only going to make him wait, but he was going to show him that he was going to make him wait for his covenant promises to be fulfilled. And he was preparing his heart this way. Verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, this, this is not Abram, you know, where you know, somehow during the day he went out and got these animals, he slaughtered them and did all this, and he's waiting and keeping all the birds of prey away, and then by the end of the day he's just so tired and he nodded off to sleep. Now, I, I, I don't think that's what's happened here. This is not Abram just feeling tired and falling off to sleep. Now, this was a deep sleep that God intentionally brought about on Abram precisely because God wanted him to be in this deep sleep. For those of you who've been with us from the beginning of Genesis, it should remind you of another time where God brought about a deep sleep. Remember in the garden with Adam, where God brought about a deep sleep? He wanted Adam to be in that deep sleep. Why? Because he was then going to take a rib out of Adam and make Eve. 
And it'll become very clear to us in a few verses why God has intentionally brought about a deep sleep on Abram in this situation. The verse continues and says, And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The idea is there was such a great darkness around him that he was filled with dread and terror. Now this is what is called as a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. Now some of you might be thinking, what do you mean? God is manifesting himself as great darkness? I thought he manifests himself as light. That's right, he manifests himself in light, but he also manifests himself as darkness as well. In fact, if you think at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, 21, it says there was a thick darkness where God was. And interestingly, it was the same time that God was going to make another covenant with the people of Israel. Psalm 97.2 says, clouds and thick darkness are around him. So it's part of, it's another way in which God manifests itself. Thick darkness. You, You think about on the cross of Calvary at crucifixion. It says, and a great darkness filled the land. What is that? Again, it is the presence of God right there. And so this great darkness is God manifesting himself to Abram. And Abram is filled with terror and dread with God's presence near him. Why? Because any any finite being, any sinful being, when they come face to face with the immensity and the holiness of God, in whatever way God manifests himself, they cannot but feel terror because this God is too intense. You know, you think of even Isaiah when he sees that vision of God, you know, on the throne and the angels crying out, holy, 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 and he's seeing him in his glory. He says, whoa, I am undone. And there's many different places in scripture where people come across God's manifestations and they're filled with terror. So Abram's filled with terror and he understands that this is God who has manifested himself. Now in this deep sleep now, the Lord speaks to Abram. Look at verses 13 to 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Remember Abram's question? Lord, how will I know? Here here the Lord says to Abram, know for certain. I want you to know this for certain, Abraham. That this land will belong to you and, or more specifically to your descendants, but you're going to have to wait a little while. 
And the Lord tells him what exactly is going to happen in the future. He says, Abram, your descendants, they're going to live as strangers and aliens in a foreign land. And they're going to be oppressed and enslaved for 400 years. And this 400 years, it's, it's more a rounding off. It's a reference to four generations, such that each generation is counted as 100 years. So after four generations of enslavement, God says, your descendants then will come out from under this great oppressive nation with great possessions because I'm going to deliver them from this foreign nation by bringing my judgment on them. Now what is this talking about? Well, we have the privilege of having the rest of the Bible, the rest of God's revelation. And we know that this is talking about the time when the nation of Israel will dwell in Egypt as slaves. And where God will bring judgment on Egypt in the form of ten plagues. And then the Israelites, as they leave Egypt, God asks them to ask the Egyptians to give them of their possessions. And what do the Egyptians do? They actually give them a lot of the riches. And we know as we then move on that the Lord will then use those riches to build the tabernacle. So after four generations, the Lord says, Abram's descendants are going to come back to this land. But then the question, but why so long? I mean, why can't Abram possess the land now? I mean, if God's going to give the land anyway, why not just have it now? And the answer comes in verse 16. I want you to look at verse 16 again. It says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now the term Amorites here, it's just, you know, broadly to speak of the inhabitants of Canaan. And God is saying the reason why it is going to take four generations, why it's going to take 400 years for his descendants to come back to this land is because the sin of the Canaanite people have not reached a point of no return. That their sin have not reached a point which will bring about a severe judgment from God. And really, when you look at the pages of Scripture, after four generations have passed, by the time the people of Israel are ready to conquer the land, the inhabitants of Canaan had indeed become so perverse in their sin. See, by that time, they had become engrossed in every kind of sexual sin, every kind of perversion in that sense. And beyond that, they were also involved in sacrificing their own children. And you read of some of that in Leviticus 18. That's how perverse their sin had become. And so when people then talk about the conquest of the land of Canaan and they ask, oh, was it fair for God to you know, destroy everyone in the land? What we need to understand is this, that God was being just because the sin of the people of the land of Canaan at that time was so perverse. 
God didn't just randomly decide saying, oh, okay, you know what? Now it's time. I'll just kill off all those people and hey, nation of Israel, you can come back in here. No, God was being fully just in doing that. And you know, this would have been a reminder to the Israelites. Remember when the Torah is read first, the first five books, including this book of Genesis, the people of Israel are in the plains of Moab, ready, getting ready to conquer the land. And so as they're listening to this, they are being reminded that this war that they're going to have to make with the inhabitants of the land is a completely just war. And the nation of Israel is going to be God's agent of justice. See, God is a righteous and just God, and he will not let sin go unpunished. But even beyond that, what I want you to see here, and I, and I believe that seems to be the emphasis here, is the patience of God. Four generations, 400 years, God waited in patience, allowing the people of the land time to repent. He didn't destroy them immediately. He waited 400 long years. God is a patient God. And he is patient with everyone. And the Apostle Paul tells us why God is patient with all sinners. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 and verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Or the words of Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, 9 where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to understand this, that God has been so patient with you. So patient. Every day of your life. And the fact that you are alive here and the fact that you're listening to this message and being told about the patience of God is God's very patience and kindness to you this morning. And God is being patient with you so that you have the opportunity to turn away from your sin and to trust in Jesus and to live for his glory. And let me tell you, friend, if you do not do so, there will come a time where God will mete out his justice on you. Because God is also a righteous and just God. 
So today is the day for you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. But for those of us who are believers, let me just say this. You know, when we wonder why, God, why are you taking so long to accomplish your promises? Let us remind ourselves that God in his wisdom is doing so many things as we're waiting on his promises. On the one side, as believers, God is building our faith. And he's continuing to work out all things for our good and for his glory. But on the other side, we must also understand that he is allowing time for others to come to repentance and faith. So that God would be seen as both a just God and a patient God. Now as for Abram, God has told him exactly what he's going to do. And while Abram's not going to see the promise fulfilled in his time, he can continue to rely on God, knowing that he is just and righteous, that he's sovereign and yet kind and patient and gracious. And knowing that, and knowing God will accomplish his purpose, God says, you will die in peace. And in this way, Abram's prepared for the covenant ceremony, but God has also prepared Abram's heart with regards to the promise of the covenant. Now lastly, the confirmation of the covenant and the promise in verses 17 to 21. The confirmation. You could call it the, the, the confirming or the sealing of the covenant. Or in modern day terms, this would be the, that last signing. Verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now this smoking firepot and flaming torch, again, this is representing the presence of God. Again, at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, 18, it says that there was a smoke around the mountain, signifying the presence of the Lord. Or if you think of how God led the Israelites in the wilderness... It was by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of smoke and fire by night. Again, that was the, the presence of the Lord. Or if you think of in the tabernacle the, where the smoke came around him. These are all things that talk about the presence of the Lord. And notice what is happening here. Who is passing on this bloody path? It's only God. Only God is passing between the animals on this bloody path. Where's Abram? Oh, God's put him to deep sleep. You, you know, even if Abram wanted to get up and walk through, he wouldn't be able to because God has put him in that deep sleep. 
Because God wanted to be like this. And what is God saying in this? God is saying the sole responsibility to see the promises of this covenant fulfilled, that sole responsibility falls on me. And he's saying, I will surely bring this plan of redemption to pass and I stake my very life on it. And here's the thing, as we will see in the coming chapters, that even with this legal, legally binding relationship and this covenant that God has with Abram, there is some obligation on Abram's part. But God is saying that ultimately, God alone is going to bring about every promise in this covenant. He's essentially saying that even if the covenant obligation is broken in any way, even if Abram or his descendants will break their obligation in any way, Abram wouldn't have to pay the price. No, it is God that has gone through this bloody path for both of them. God is saying, I will pay the price if any of the covenant obligations are broken, including if Abram or his descendants will break it. And I will make sure to fulfill the promise of this covenant. And verse 18 to 21, it reads, And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenesites, Kadomites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So in this way, God made a unilateral covenant with Abram, saying he alone will bear the responsibility to bring about the promises of this covenant to pass, no matter who breaks, no matter if the covenant promises are broken. And here God is delineating a, a pretty big area of land that the descendants of Abram will get. Now the land promise is important, as I've mentioned before, because this land of Canaan is in the middle, literally in the middle of strategically in the middle of the nations. And it will function like Eden, like how Eden was as a place from which God's blessings will flow. Similar to how Eden was and the four rivers flow to the four corners of the earth. And then when you think about it, it is from this land, when the Israelites are in this land, that the priests of God would come. It is from this land that kings of the people of God would come. It is from this land that King Jesus would be born as a human babe. And when Jesus returns and he reigns from David's throne, it is from this land then where that source of blessing will go out to the rest of the nations. And ultimately, this land promise to Israel, it becomes even a paradigm or a pattern 
or a template for God, for what God will do for all nations, where all believers will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. So now, in this way, God guarantees to Abram and his descendants that his plan of redemption to bless all nations, where his descendants will come into this land and that blessing will go forth, will be fulfilled. Just even as I close, just turn with me to Galatians 3, 13 and 14. We read this this morning. And I just want to read just verses 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, the reality is that Abram, as well as all his children, whether his physical descendants or his spiritual descendants, they would all break their covenant obligation to walk a blameless life before the Lord. But here's the thing. God alone walked through that bloody path. And what that meant is, if Abram or his descendants did not keep their part of walking blamelessly before the Lord, God says, may I be cursed. May I die. So that then the blessing of salvation would come to all of Abram's children by faith. But then at this point, you're left with questions of, okay, so Abram breaks the covenant obligations, but how can God be cursed? How can God die? These are questions not answered here. And when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the time of the crucifixion, it says a great darkness filled the land. And on that cross, Jesus cries out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the words of R.C. Sproul, that is Jesus saying, experiencing the curse from God, where God is saying, I damn you. I damn you. See, friends and brothers and sisters, God cannot die. But because God had made this promise and he alone said, I will fulfill this promise, Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world took the form of a human being 
and died on the cross. Because everyone around him broke this covenant obligation. You know, so many times people think what happened on the cross, they simply think of, oh, it was just physical suffering. And they focus so much on it. And they don't realize, no, what really happened on that cross is that he bore the very curse of God on himself for the sin of his people because they broke their covenant obligation. And Jesus was cursed and he died. But then he rose on the third day, proving that he fulfilled every obligation that God required. He fulfilled it for us and for all those who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. They will receive the blessing of salvation that was promised to Abram and his descendants. If there's anyone here this morning that's listening, let me just say to you, if you haven't turned to Jesus, yes, you are accumulating the wrath and the curse of God. And God is continuing to be patient with you. But if you do not turn, turn and see what the Lord Jesus has done, where God in his patience and his kindness and his mercy sent his son to die on the cross for a sinner like you and me so that you could be made right with God. And if you reject that, then that curse will come on you and God will mete out his justice. But for those of us who are believers, realize this, brothers and sisters. As we think of the plan of salvation, and as we think of God alone walking on that bloody path where he promised to keep, fulfill the promises of that covenant, It is telling us that salvation was never dependent on us. No, it is all of God. We can never earn it. We can never do anything to earn it. But we can simply receive it by faith through Jesus Christ. May these words strengthen your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your love for him. And may we live for him and him alone. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for providing a way for wretched sinners like us who can never be walking blamelessly before you. We thank you for providing a way by which your curse, your damnation didn't fall on us, but it fell on Jesus Christ. And we thank you that, that he paid it all for us so that now we are have this wonderful relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, keep us close to the cross. May we ever think of Jesus, our Savior. Cause us to grow in our faith in you. Cause us to grow our love in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.